third chapter of the book of Romans. You'll keep that open. I'll read those verses in a moment. In 1963, in the spring, early in the morning, a U.S. naval vessel uh, under the name of the USS Thrasher pulled out of port on its maiden voyage. It, it was a nuclear submarine. And it was being tracked and, and, and watched on the, on the radar. And to the absolute amazement and surprise of the radar operators and the builders of this vessel, it disappeared off of the radar screen. The USS Thrasher was so perfectly designed and built, it was thought to be virtually indestructible. And they only found bits and pieces of the USS Thrasher later. The cause was said to be a faulty weld in the bulkhead, so that when the Thrasher reached a certain depth, it totally disintegrated. And the, naval, uh, and the Navy released a gruesome report of its finding, and it read like this. The men inside were cooked as in a pressure cooker. The salty seawater came in like blistering steam. And after days of searching, all we have found are bits and pieces of bone, steel, and glass. It was a total wipeout. And all 127 crew members died at sea. I'm intrigued by the term, it was a total wipeout. Three years later, in a more festive mood, 40,000 people gathered on the banks of the Potomac to watch the President's regatta. It was a hot summer after, Sunday afternoon, and 14 of the fastest speedboats in America were roaring at the starter's line. Two men, by, one man by the name of Rex Matheson and another by the name of Charles Wilson had the two fastest boats, and they'd been carrying on this media hype, both predicting victory. So it was no surprise that when they turned for the final lap, they were neck and neck, just inches apart. And as they roared to the finish line at speeds of 150 to 175 miles an hour on the, on the, on the water, Matheson's boat finished inches ahead of Wilson's. And just as it crossed the finish line, it, un, uh, for no reason, lurched into the air and exploded with a roar that was heard four miles away and totally disintegrated. And the next day, the Boston Globe ran a headline that, that read like this, Victory has a hollow ring, dot, dot, total wipeout. Now these two illustrations fit perfectly what I want to say tonight from chapter 3 of the book of Romans. For what was true in these illustrations is true of a man who stands before God. He has reached total wipeout. He is beyond repair. He has reached total depravity. For the scripture agrees that man before God is totally and unconditionally dead. He's a wipeout before God. So that what chapter 3 discusses is what is known in theological circles as total depravity, the doctrine of total depravity. And this doctrine is developed by a master theologian by the name of the Apostle Paul. 
It's unfortunate that there is a chapter break after verse 29. Chapter divisions were developed 1200 years, 1200 A.D., but the flow of the thought breaks really at verse 9 of chapter 3 so that what is found in verses 1 through 8 covers the same subject as chapter 2 covers. I want you to just kind of make note of that, if you will. Now, the context of this third chapter is, is this, that the book of Romans is the gospel of the Apostle Paul, and it is the declaration of the good news that man, uh, of the hope that man has in Jesus Christ. And what he's doing in chapters 1 through 4 is describing man's need, man's hopeless condition apart from Jesus Christ. Chapter 1 we discovered man as the gross sinner and it's the indescribable picture of, of the depth of, of man's sin. Chapter 2 verses 1 through 16 describe the need of the self-righteous moralist. Man is... A, as a self-righteous moralist needs Christ and, hope, and is hopeless without Him. And the last 13 verses of chapter 2 describe the religious person. And the most religious person in Paul's day was the Jew. And the Jew was depending on three things to get him into heaven. He was depending on his name, he was depending on his works, and he was depending on his book. And as we saw the last time we discussed the book of Romans, that the Apostle Paul says that none of these things is going to get you into heaven. Not the fact that you're a Jew, not the fact that you have the book, the, 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 the Pentateuch, not the fact that you do good works. That's not going to get you to heaven. Now when you tell a religious man that all of those things is not going to get him to heaven, you're going to get an argument right away. Anytime you tell a religious man that without Jesus Christ, he's not going to heaven, he's going to put up an argument right away because he's basing his entrance into heaven upon one of those three things. And so chapter 3 then begins really with this argument that, that a religious man will put up if you tell him he's not going to get to heaven. So I want you to imagine yourself in a courtroom and we're going to deal with three arguments that just come automatically from the religious man or any man if you tell him that he has to have Christ to get to heaven. The first is the argument concerning advantage. Now look at verse 1. Then he says, then what advantage has the Jew? You see when there's no chapter break it fits what is being discussed there in chapter 2 that the religious man's not going to get to heaven because of his works. So the Jew comes back, he's the most religious man in the world at that time, he comes back and says, well then what advantage is it to be a Jew? I mean, what benefit is there of circumcision? And the Apostle Paul answers him back this way, great in every respect, first of all, that you were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now this is what the Apostle Paul said, it, it is of tremendous advantage that you're a Jew. Because as a Jew, you were entrusted with the oracles of God, with the written book. You were given the book that told of the Messiah. You were given the light of hope that Isaiah talked about. You were given the light of life. It's a tremendous advantage that you're a Jew because you have the oracles of God. Now there's ground for application here. There's not a single one of us tonight, or I imagine maybe 
few college students would be the exception, but there's very few of us tonight who can ever remember when you didn't have the Bible or you didn't go to church. There are very few of us tonight who did not have, from the very time that we were, can remember, when we didn't have the influence of the Scripture and the church. When we cut our teeth on the, on the pew of a Baptist church, most of us did, and we had that advantage. And sometimes to have the advantage, how neglected is this book? And there are some of us here tonight, I'm absolutely convinced of it, even though you've had this book from the time you can remember, you know very little about what it teaches. I bet you couldn't find five verses of Scripture if your life depended on it, some of us at least some listening by television, and even though you've had several Bibles in your hands all of your life and a church on every corner, some of us have absolutely, really, a poor concept of what that means. And the book is neglected. And so Paul says, you Jews, it was a tremendous advantage because you had this light of God. Now imagine, if you will, let me illustrate what I'm talking about. Imagine, if you can, this massive island in the midst of, 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 a, of a great sea. And there is around you nothing but darkness and despair. And you can, you know, there's no light, you, you cannot see. You're just an island in the midst of this vast water. And there's a bridge that connects you to, to the mainland, the island to the mainland, this bridge. It's a it's a bridge that will give you, uh, you know, uh, release from, from this isolation. It's a way to safety. But it's dark and only a few people have the light. And the light is this spotlight or searchlight. And just a few people have this searchlight. And the purpose of the searchlight was given to these few people in order that they might focus it on the bridge. And these few people who have the only light, the searchlight, given to them in order that they might focus it on the bridge for them to say, this is the way out, this is the way to safety. And what the Jews did was to take this light that was to be focused on the bridge of safety and release and freedom, and they, searched, they, they, they placed it on trivial things. Like, can you eat an egg that's laid on the Sabbath day? Because actually the hen worked, you know, in laying the egg and that kind of stuff. And there's ground for application because this denomination that we belong to, I'm convinced, is passing through a time in history when we have taken the light that should be focused on the bridge that shows men how to get out, and we've taken this light and we've, and we've focused it on insignificant, trivial matters. We do it every day, and we do it theologically. And so this marvelous advantage that you and I have had, and you and I have, we've taken and placed on, on peripheral and insignificant things. I have the second argument. It's found in verse 3, and it's this. What then, he says, if some did not believe their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? This is the argument. Does that mean that, that if the Jew sins, that um, that's going to um, counsel God's power and God's plan? 
does, does it mean that if the Jew is unfaithful, does that nullify the plan of God? And the answer is found in verse 4. May it never be. The other translations that are like this, perish the thought, you know. May it never be. Don't even think about it, friend. Rather let God be found true, though every man a liar, as it is written, thou, that thou mightest be justified in thy words, and mightest prevail when thou art judged. That's a quote from Psalm 51.4. Now this is what Paul is saying. The unfaithfulness of man does not nullify the faithfulness of God. Now I'm, I've said, you know, in my Sunday school class this morning, we were talking about the fact that in the plan of God, you know, in the, in the normal scheme of things, the firstborn son was the next in line to fulfill the plan of the father. And when Esau and Jacob were born... Esau was the firstborn son, but the whole pattern of this thing, and if you understand it really with the way it really is, Esau was godless. He had, no, he had no desire to fulfill his father's plan. Did that nullify God's plan for the ages promised to Abraham? No, he just went around Esau and selected somebody else. Listen to me very carefully. God has a special plan for every one of us and God has a special plan for this church and for this denomination and on down the line. But listen, if we're not faithful to the plan, it's not going to destroy God's plan for the world. He's to get somebody else to do it. He may already have. Um, you know where God is most at work in this world today? He's most at work, if I understand, if I can read religious... Uh, current events, God is most at work in this world today in Korea. And while we struggle on Sunday morning, you know, to get up in time and make it to church, and most, you know, Sunday school classes are half empty, in Korea, there'll be thousands of Koreans up at four o'clock in the morning just to pray for the morning service. And while we come together in America, and most of us in dead churches... God is moving on that land and thousands are being saved in every service and the largest church in the world is in Seoul, Korea and in August when the Baptist World Alliance meets there, they're going to, in the Olympic swimming pool where they had the Olympics this past year, in the Olympic swimming pool they're going to have the largest baptismal service in the history of mankind. They're hoping to baptize 10,000 converts in one service. That is, every delegate from the, at the Baptist World Alliance. Let me tell you something. If, God, if God's people in this country and in this community don't decide to do God's will and follow through in the connecting link of God's plan, let me tell you something. God's not going to throw up His hands and say, well, you know, they're all I've got. He's just going to move on and get somebody else to do it. You can mark it down. And so the Apostle Paul said, let it be that God is found true if every man else is a liar. What he's saying is this, that the quantity of man's sin doesn't taint God. I mean, just because you fail, don't think that that means that God fails too. All right, number three, three, three arguments. The third argument 
is found in verses 5 and 7. Just jump around with me here. But if our unrighteousness demonstrate the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is He? I'm speaking human terms. But if through my life, verse 7, the truth of God abounded to His glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? Now, here's the argument. It's not clear there. Here's the argument. He's saying if my sin gives God maximum opportunity to demonstrate His goodness... Why shouldn't I sin a lot more? I mean, that makes sense. If my sin makes, gives God the maximum opportunity to demonstrate His goodness, I'll just sin more. I mean, if my bad exposes or reveals God's good, then wouldn't it make sense that I be bad, totally bad, so that God can be revealed as totally good? And the answer is that sin never glorifies God. Now watch this carefully. Anytime a person preaches the doctrine of grace, and that's what he's doing here because he's talking to religious people who are thinking that their religious works are going to get them to heaven. Anytime you begin to preach the doctrine of grace, the response is always, well, you're preaching a loose morality. You're preaching... You're promoting loose living. You know, I mean, if it's just a matter of grace, then, you know, what, what, what difference does it make what you do? You see what I'm saying? I mean, look at the uh, illogic of this thought. Penicillin is a wonderful uh, in, uh, discovery, and there is tremendous power of healing in, in, in penicillin. If you follow the line of this logic, we'd say, well, why don't we just all get sick so it can show how great penicillin is. You know. And these paramedics do a tremendous job coming in, 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 in accidents, you know, and, 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 and rescuing people and bringing them uh, into the hospital and saving their lives. If you follow the logic of this, you'd say, well, why don't we all just go out here on the expressway, expressway and have an accident so the paramedics can do their job. Yeah, how stupid the logic is. And so he backs off now at the break that really should be chapter 3. And he goes, he, 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 picks man, he depicts man under the umbrella of his sin. Now hang with me, watch this carefully. In verse 9 there is a general statement, and then verses 10 through 18 he gets down to specifics. Now watch this. What then? Are we better than they? The we refers to the Jews and the they refers to the non-Jews. What then? You know, you talk to a Jew, you take verse 9 of chapter 3 and lay him out. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we all have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. It doesn't matter who you are what you've done, your name, your oracle, we're all under sin. That is to say, we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we all live under the judgment that sin demands. You remember when Walter Cronkite was on the national news? You know, how, he, how, how did he close out every night? He'd say, well, that's the way it is. Isn't that the way you say? I can see you've watched him often. That's the way it is. 
Now, a guy could be watching that television news forecast, and he could say to him, you know, he could say in response, that's not the way it is. You can't believe anything on television. That's not the way it really is. Well, if you say that, you've got the burden of proof. You're going to have to prove that's not the way it is. And Rod Conkright has... He has reporters and pictures and everything else to prove it is. Now the Jew might say, that's not the way it is, but the burden of proof's on him. And the scripture, the apostle Paul said, that's the way it is. That every man, Jew or non-Jew, is under sin. He sinned. Now watch, follow me in verse 11. Verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is absolutely none who seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And you say, well, now wait a minute. I know some folks who do good. They do a lot of good. I know a lot of people who do a lot of things that God loves and God likes and God wants. They do good. But you see, Paul says that it's not a matter of how we look at what is happening, but how God looks at it. And we're looking at it, it's, it's not a matter of man's judgment of whether this is good or not. It's a matter of whether God's judgment is whether it's good or not. Uh, Dwight Pentecost um, kind of gives us a little help with regard to the doctrine of total depravity. He says, it. he said, our definition of total depravity is this, that man is as bad as he could be. Our definition of total depravity is that man is as bad as he could be. And if we take that definition of total depravity, we call this doctrine into question because we know some folks who aren't as bad as they could be. There are some folks who are really good. And indeed, they are not as bad as they could be. Now listen carefully. Dwight Pentecost says, The doctrine of total depravity is this, that man is as bad off as he could be. And that's what you have in this text. That you can't get any worse off than this right here. Now look at the way he describes it. He starts at the top of a man's head and he goes down to his feet. Watch this. He says, their throat is an open grave. God doesn't look on the outside, on the surface. He looks down inside. He says, their heart, their, tongue, their throat is an open grave. Now what do we do with a grave? We cover it up. We put flowers on it. But God looks past the surface and He looks past the deed. He looks past the, the, the flowers and He looks down into the throat, into the inside of a man. That's what He's talking about. And He says, with their tongues they keep deceiving. And the poison of asps is under their lips. Their whole mouth, their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. He's describing each of us. This last week, uh, the uh, midnight stalker was uh, sentenced to die. I think, is that program on tonight? 
Something everybody ought to watch. Somebody go out and cutting everybody's throat. Everybody ought to go home and watch that. I mean, that'll, that'll, that'll make you feel great. And the Midnight Stalker killed 13 people out there in California. And, 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 and we just kind of, uh, we just kind of re- recoil at the vicious, heinous thing that, that that describes. Let me tell you something. That nature to do that is in everybody. Or this scripture is not true. And who was the first offspring of the first couple that, was, that existed on this earth? His name was Cain, and you know what he was. He was the first murderer. And you turn over to the last scene in the book of Revelation, and what you see is this warfare being declared against God. And so from the beginning of time to the end of time, man's feet has been swift to shed blood. We're warmongers. And the nature of man is the nature to, to destroy. Look at this description. This will make you feel great. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not found. And then verse 18... Vile sinner we found in chapter two, 1. And he's taking that self-righteous man and that religious man of chapter 2 and he's putting us all in the same category. Outside of Jesus Christ, we are all as bad off as we could be. I sat down with a, with a guy one time who is a, a profound um, humanist. And he was really giving me a hard time about uh, preaching you know, negative sermons. And he said, what I believe is, is that we ought to tell man that he is good and ought to live that way. And I said, that's all right. But I believe the Bible says that man is bad and needs to be saved. And that's what this chapter's about. That from the top of man's head to the bottom of his feet even though he is deeply and profoundly religious, his nature is this way. And here's the final verdict. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Here's three, the verdict is, final verdict is threefold. Watch it. That every mouth may be closed. That's the first thing. Every mouth is closed. You know what he's saying? There are no excuses and there is no room for rationale. You know what you and I do? We have de- we, we've developed this marvelous rationale to explain away our sin and to justify it. And he said the final verdict is there is no rationale that justifies any sin and there is no excuse for it. And the second thing he says is, For through, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin, but now apart from... Wait a minute, let me back up and get it. I'm totally lost. Verse 20, Because by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. That's the second verdict. By the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. And the third verdict is that the whole world has become accountable. Well, let's draw a bottom line then. And if man is really as he is described apart from Christ, like he's described here, religious or not, the bottom line is that no works he does justifies him. 
He has no rationale to explain away his sin, and he is accountable to God. All right? Two words of conclusion. The first is this. The only solution to sin is Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not telling you anything that you haven't already known. And probably maybe everybody here tonight is, is professing Christian. I, I, I'm sure there may be some who are church members that, that may not be genuine Christians. That's true in every place, every time. But the only solution to sin is Jesus Christ. Dead people can't save dead people. And totally depraved people can't save totally depraved people. The only solution to sin is Jesus. And second conclusion is that the devil's plan or strategy is to cause us to delay the main decision. The devil's strategy is to get us to delay. The devil's strategy is for a man to say, well, that may be true, I'll take care of it tomorrow. Let's pray. Father, we don't necessarily like what we see when we open the Scripture, and that's why some of us never open the Scripture. We know the truth is there, and it is the truth both written and embodied in Jesus Christ that sets us free. Help us to see that the only solution that we have is in Jesus. Let us turn to Him tonight. Help us to turn to Him, lift Him up, Father, to us, and so that every sinner might be saved, for I pray in Jesus' name. Let me just, before I say to you, I feel impressed to do this, to look right at this camera and speak to that person who is watching tonight who has never placed his faith in Jesus Christ. Right now where you are, maybe in your house or in a, tel in a, a motel room, wherever you are, this is the description of every person apart from Jesus Christ. You may be a religious person, you may be a member of a church. Apart from Jesus Christ, you're no different than this. Would you invite Jesus into your life? Receive His life into your life, and in receiving Him, you get a new nature. That new nature is the place where the Lord Himself dwells. There may be some of you tonight who need to come declaring your faith in Jesus Christ or ch for church membership or maybe you come to this place to discover for the first time that, that Jesus and your faith in Him is the only solution. Maybe you need just to rededicate your life. Whatever God leads you to do, I invite you to come as we stand to sing.